Now, some of you know what we've been up to these past few weeks, so you don't, you don't mind if I just remind folks who may be coming for the first time or who may be watching online what we're doing during the season of Lent. We're trying to unpack this idea of covenant and sacred promises. It's a big word. It's a theological, biblical word. But we often ask ourselves, what difference does that make in our everyday life? And what I'm going to show you today is it makes a huge difference in our actions, in our thoughts, and how we live in the world. And so we're grappling with this sense of covenant during our sermons. Every Sunday, we're taking a different promise of the baptismal covenant and unpacking it. And even in our podcasts, we're doing the same thing, but with particular scriptures throughout Lent. So if you haven't yet had a chance to tune into those podcasts, I encourage you to do so. And also join us every Sunday as we grapple with this sense of covenant. Specifically today, what I want to do is I want to look a little bit at Jeremiah and a little bit at the Gospel of John to get a scriptural basis for what we're talking about today. And then I want to go to the baptismal covenant writ large. It is going to be like a turbo overview, but it's really important for what I want to say in my sermon. And then we'll talk a little bit about what does it mean when we say, will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? We'll, we'll look at that specifically. And then I'll also look at some current events, some things that have happened that I think if you look at the core of it, has to do with dignity and whether people feel that their dignity has been violated. And so I think it's useful not only for Christians, but for humanity to have this conversation. So let's begin with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is painting a picture of a renewed covenant between God and God's people. And what's great about this is we know that that sense of covenant, the law given at Sinai, these are the ways that we live our lives, the 10 best ways. But Jeremiah imagines a day when those commandments of God are written on our heart. In a sense, it's almost like they're hardwired. And we don't have to teach or go to one another and say, what does the Lord command? Because we'll know it in our gut. We'll know it in our bones, in our minds, our hearts, our whole being. In the Jewish understanding, we don't divide body, mind, spirit. It is a whole thing. And so the sense that Jeremiah is saying is a day will come where we will know the commandment of God, which is the way of love. We will know it and we will live it. That is a great promise. And that is a great hope, not only for the Jewish people, but for humanity. And I'm leaning into that today. And then we turn to the Gospel of John, and this is a very powerful Gospel lesson. Um, there's a part at the beginning where some Greeks want to come see Jesus, and that seems to trigger Jesus saying, the time has come for me to be glorified. And if you're not sure about the Bible or what that means, it's that in Christ's suffering, in Christ's death, the will of God will be revealed in a remarkable way. And sure enough, Jesus then talks about if a seed falls into the ground, it breaks open and lives, but if it never dies, if it never goes into the ground, it can't create the fruit that's intended. And so I suggest to you here at St. Michael, in our homes, in our work, there are things in us that need to die. Patterns, behaviors, ways of thinking that in a sense no longer serve us. They need to die, go into the ground so that something new can be born. But the problem is it's a very scary process. Many of you have, who have walked the journey of faith, who have actually encountered the living God, know that to let something go that you cling to, whether or not it's helpful, 
is incredibly scary and difficult, but we know that in Christ, we are held in that process. There is nowhere we can go apart from God's love as we do that faith journey. So that's a little bit of what our scripture lessons are trying to say today. And now I'd like us to turn to the baptismal covenant, which we find in the Episcopal prayer book. And it begins with consent. And I say this because it's important. No one has to be baptized. Baby, I doesn't have much choice. But you don't have to be baptized. It's consent of the parents, the godparents are an adult. The question is, do you desire to be baptized? I do. The idea is it's free invitation. It's response to God's love. It is not compulsory. Then we have these renunciations, and this is great archaic church language that if we lose touch with it, we are impoverished. Listen, what are you renouncing? What are you turning away from? Satan and the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. It's a sense of the cosmic evil. Two, evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. We know that. We know systems of oppression that in a sense crush people, we are renouncing that. We are turning away from that. Our response to that is, I renounce them. And then sinful desires that draw you from the love of God. Those things in our individual lives, those choices which take us on a path that is not full of relationship and God's love, we renounce those. But we don't end there. We then turn to affirmations. What are you saying yes to? What are, you, what are you holding on to? And in every case, all three of them, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Listen, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? I do. Do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? I do. Do you promise to follow and obey him as your Lord? I do. The most important work we can do here at St. Michael is to cultivate discipleship of Jesus Christ. It will transform us. It will transform our church and it will transform our community. And that's the radical work we're invited into in our baptism. Then it goes on to the, what do you believe? And some of you know, you've come out of other church contexts. You know the multi-page document that you have to sign about what you believe in order to be in that denomination. I went to a Christian college where there was a covenant you signed about behavior, right? In the Episcopal church, this is what we believe. God the Father... God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The triune God is the full and complete expression of God's intention for our lives. And we are careful not to give more detail or to lay burdens on people that are beyond God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Remember that. That's our core. We don't put our trust in biblical inerrancy, although the Bible is true and good. We don't put our trust in patriarchy, although that's the history of the scriptural text. We don't put our trust in the subjugation of women. And we don't put our trust in the condemnation of homosexuality, to name a few. We put our trust in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Then after we do that complete summary of faith, then the questions are, what then shall you do? How then shall you live? Because if this stays in the pew at St. Michael Church, it's not much use. How then shall you live? This is what we've heard the last four weeks. Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in the prayers? Meaning, will you come and take the Eucharist? Will you be part of the community? 
Will you persevere in resisting evil? And whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. There is this process that we go astray. We need to say, I'm sorry. I did it with my wife yesterday. We have to do this over and over and over. I'm sorry for not living into the fullness that God intends. That's normal. That's good. Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? It's not a secret. If it's changing your life, you can talk about it. Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? Wow. Now we're really getting into the hard stuff where we don't get to demonize and objectify and, uh, you know, treat others as somehow other, because in a sense, in them, we see the Christ, we see ourselves. And so there's something about perceiving the Christ in one another that is critical to our baptismal covenant. And then today, Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? I was talking with Bob Johnston before this service, and we were acknowledging there are so many paths you can go down with that promise. There are so many ways you can think about what does it mean to respect the dignity of every human being. I will look at one facet. He'll look at a different one at 11. And all of us, if we told our stories, could turn that crystal and say, what does it mean for me to respect the dignity of every human being. These questions, this baptismal covenant shows us what a Christ-centered life looks like. We won't always hit the mark, but with God's help, we know where we're headed. So that's the background. That's the core of what we're trying to do. So let's look a little more at, will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? Jesus did it all the time. Every interaction, every teaching, Every confrontation, Jesus respected the dignity of the human being with whom he was in relationship with. Now, that respect did not look the same for every person. Let's remember this. Jesus challenged the Pharisees and protected the woman caught in adultery. Jesus told subversive stories about Roman occupation and highlighted the faithfulness of the widow. Jesus remained silent in front of Pontius Pilate's questioning, but he explained everything to his disciples. And I suggest that in every case, he showed love because it's not one size fits all. It's contextual. It's who's the, who is the person that I'm with, that I'm interacting with? How does God's love get expre expressed in that context? And so every situation calls for a different kind of love, a different kind of response. I do think that a guiding story for Jesus, and he lets us in on it, but we don't always pay attention. A guiding story for Jesus is the story of the 99 sheep and the one who is lost. And Jesus will spare nothing to find the one that is lost. And do you know why? Because the one who is separated from community is at the most risk. The one who is isolated, who sees themselves as unloved, who sees themselves as alone, Jesus goes out to that one to restore that one to community. It's not that Jesus doesn't love the 99. It's just that he thinks y'all are going to be fine. You've got each other. You're living the way of love. Let me go out and help this one who is apart from the community. That too is a key understanding for what I'm about to say next. So this week, I feel like every week, right? There's big stories. They get spinned in particular ways. There are all kinds of political agendas going on as we read stories in various papers. I get it. 
And yet, there were a couple of big things this week that I want to touch on. And I want to ask myself the question. So I'm not asking what you say, or I I don't presume to say what you would say. But this was my honest experience this week as I read about some of these things. And I would love to know what you thought as well. So the story that I want to emphasize is the story about the Vatican. And they put out that explanation. I don't know if you saw it. There's this question and answer process. And the College for the Doctrine of Faith will give an answer to a question that's posed. And so the question posed is, can we bless same-sex unions? It's the Catholic Church. Not surprisingly, they said no. Right? That doesn't shock anyone. But I read the document. And I saw some things in there that I realized troubled me deeply. That I couldn't agree with. Even as I live within a priestly setting, even though I am uh, faithful to the discipline of the Episcopal Church and to the Diocese of Dallas, as I read that document, I realized that there was parts of it that did not ring true to my experience, to my friends, and to my family. Let me be specific. This doctrinal body made two assumptions. One, that homosexual relationships are disordered and inconsistent with God's plan for creation. Just let, I, want you, I want you to let that sink in. That homosexual relationships are disordered and incompatible with God's plans for creation. And the second was that sexual activity, except between a man and a woman in marriage, is sinful. I want to look at these for a minute in real life terms. I understand that these statements are consistent with the historical practice of the church, But I also believe these conclusions are beginning to run into a question around science, reason, and experience. Remember, in the Episcopal Church, we have three legs of the stool. We have Holy Scripture, we have the tradition of the church, and we have reason, which also includes experience. All of those work together. We don't silence anyone. We let them mingle and bounce against each other. And that's what I'm trying to do today, is to take this firm doctrine of the the Catholic Church and bring it up against my own experience. I would suggest that there is evidence that homosexuality exists in the animal kingdom and that people who are gay are made that way. It is not a choice. And I know this from deep personal experience. It is how someone is wired. I have close friends and family members who have walked this path, and one of the most important steps in claiming their own dignity, because remember, respect the dignity of all human beings, including yourself, is acknowledging that sexual orientation is, that their sexual orientation is not inherently disordered, but different. That their way of loving is not inherently broken, but full of promise. I think you have to say that for all human beings, that we are all in process. We are all being broken open in our relationships to better understand ourselves, our partner, and our God. And to somehow say that there's a category of people who are fundamentally disordered, that they cannot know God through the expression of their love, I find deeply problematic. I think God's love is bigger and more complex than that. And as for the sinfulness of sex outside of marriage, I understand the church's reason for this position, and I agree that God's covenantal love is expressed in the beauty of marriage. But I think we can also pathologize something that's perfectly normal and harm people in the process if we're not careful. Sexual expression 
is a common part of committed loving relationships and fo focusing exclusively on the dangers of sex can lead to unhealthy patterns. We know that sex can be disordered. We know that sex can be exploitative. We know that sex can be unsafe. But sex in itself is not sinful. It is how we live out this most vulnerable part of ourselves that matters. We ask ourselves, are we building up a relationship? Are we tearing it down? It does have great power, but it has great power for good. If the news reports are correct, it may have been an unhealthy relationship to sex that contributed to a mentally fragile young man murdering eight people in Atlanta, six of them Asian women. By his own words, he was trying to get rid of the source of his temptation. Notice that women are the problem. This is a subtle and not so subtle message in some churches that women are responsible for men's behavior. Please, step up to the plate, men. Take responsibility for your actions. And as for the assault on Asian women, I don't think it helps that some leaders in positions of public trust have been blaming Asian people for the pandemic, using terms like China virus or Kung flu. It's not an accident that reports of bullying, harassment, and physical assault against Asian persons have increased dramatically in the last year. Our words matter. Our actions matter. Now, we don't know enough about the case in Atlanta to draw a straight line to this man's motivation, but I think we can agree that small assaults on the dignity of others can lead to widespread disrespect and harm. Will you respect the dignity of every human being? Now, let me also say there's many ways to respect dignity. You may have a different view than I do. You may stand in a different place, and you are just as capable of showing dignity to another as I am. I don't pretend that you have to hold my view to respect that dignity, but it does matter. However you do it, wherever you land, you always must see the other as a child of God, as God's beloved, and that will affect how you relate to the people and to the issue. Richard Rohr wrote a blog two months ago called Pulling Back the Veil, and he wrestles with how God is being revealed today. And listen to this, because I think it describes this time, which is messy and fraught and unclear, but it's filled with holy possibility. No matter what is going on around us, it's important to remember that God keeps transforming creation into something both good and new. Instead of hurtling us towards catastrophe, God always wants to bring us to something better. A helpful word here is evolution. God keeps creating things from the inside out. Remember Jeremiah's comment, my word will be within you. God keeps creating things from the inside out so that they are forever yearning, developing, growing, and changing for the good. That might be hard to see sometimes in the moment, but it's nevertheless true. So that love of the triune God that never changes, that indwelling, mutual, self-sacrificial love of the Trinity, that is constant. That will endure forever. But how it expresses itself in culture, in our church, in relationships, that can change, even as the love of the Trinity is inviolable. So what have we done today? We've read Holy Scripture and we've looked at some key promises of God to us.
We've learned from Jeremiah that the law of love is written on our hearts. We know how to behave in love. We've learned from the Gospel of John that following Jesus is hard, so hard that something might die in the process of something new being born. We've looked at the baptismal covenant as a whole as a particular way for Christians to live out the call of faith. And we reflected specifically on the fifth promise, will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? We always say, I will with God's help. We depend on God's help to find our way. I've given an example from my own life, grappling with it sincerely, in fidelity to my God, my family, and my friends. And I've acknowledged that people of good faith can land in different places. But while our conclusions may differ, one thing must never change, that we respect the dignity of every human being, not because of our own power for goodness, because of God's love in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.